Hello everyone and welcome to our uh, best of 2019 podcast, this time dealing with film and I'm joined as ever by Chris Wobble. Hello Chris. Hello. Uh, Wesley Shearer. Hello. And uh, Ian Gregson joins us. Good afternoon. Uh, and we're going to talk about, uh, say, the best films of 2019 and you guys are going to have to do the heavy lifting because I will say I've not seen a lot of films this year for whatever reason. Um, I've just not been out to the cinema uh, very much. But as that's the case, I thought we could all start with the Scottish um, stuff. And it might just be my imagination, but I don't think there's been a lot this year. Chris? No, like the only thing I, I was going through kind of my list of stuff that I'd seen, and the only thing that I think I saw this year that was actually made and released this year that was Scottish was Beats. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think that's been my sole exposure to Scottish cinema this year outside of maybe like a couple of shorts at the short film festival earlier in the year but other than that I think like yeah that's pretty much it'd be a couple of like Brian M. Ferguson shorts and stuff like that you know yeah. kind of local local stuff coming through but in terms of features I think Beats was about it for me Wesley have you seen Beats? exactly the same just Beats for me yeah <laughs> well let's um, talk about Beats yeah, then uh, because um, for those that haven't seen it it's written uh, by Kieran Hurley um, directed by Brian Welsh and it's, I think it's 1994 94 mm-hmm. yeah yep. so it's kind of I mean when I was going out to clubs I, 1994 pretty much my cut off point I think that's when I said <laughs> I've had enough of this uh, but it's about um, uh, two pals who it looks as though this is going to be the last summer as pals and uh, the music kind of Put, you know, takes them through. It's a very kind of Scottish twist on that last summer thing that you know Americans yeah. usually do so well. And um, did you like it? Yeah, I did. I liked it. I mean, like not not unreservedly, but like I think is is um, like his virtues far outweigh any anything that might be to his detriment. I, I, I think you can pin some stuff on about maybe it, like being a little on the nose in places and hitting the whole kind of like the cop dad thing a bit too hard and all of this and you know they kind of it really plays up the kind of the the teen rebellion kind of angle kind of thing but I think by the time they actually get to the climactic rave sequence that just all of that is cast by the wayside because it's just such a kind of euphoric kind of 20 minutes of you know technique and you know the character work that they built up to that point all kind of coming together and just yeah that's such an it's an incredible sequence that kind of last climactic set piece I think. because those kind of scenes are often done really badly yeah. oh, and I yeah. think that's absolutely captured you know yeah. the kind of everyone in a field just going crazy for the music yeah definitely yeah much much like what Chris was saying really really enjoyed it wasn't without its flaws I felt it was a little bit um, formulaic but not always to its detriment I don't think um, I thought when it did break from the formula on occasions it was absolutely brilliant it delivered some really really powerful scenes mm-hmm. especially the, there was a scene in the bedroom which was quite a tender moment um, which was really really nice um, there was also obviously the rave scene which Chris mentioned which is potentially the best representation of that I've ever seen on, on yeah. film um, it was a little heavy handed in places with the sort of Thatcher elements that sort of thrown in and chopped up in pieces with the editing um, but yeah it was really really good and I thought interestingly as well just the black and white part just served the film really yeah. really well it didn't just seem like a hollow artistic choice so it did that thing which um, I suppose maybe the Wizard of Oz did at first but it was black and white for, for most of it and then there were flashes of colour particularly at, at the rave Generally, scenes and yeah. stuff like that but I think you're right I think it was done subtly enough that it really made its point and did it well and I agree with you there was there was some really good interactions between the characters um, I'm thinking the, the brothers as well where the you know the younger brother kind of stands up to him and I think he tells him uh, he stops showing off oh dear immediately your heart sinks yep. and says you are in big trouble here because this guy's a nutter exactly um, but then 
you know, like when the, the bad guys are chasing the, the you know, there, there are lots of bits that maybe are a bit too much, but uh, I did enjoy it. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the music. It was great. I think, I think it, oh, sorry, no, on you go. I was just going to say, I think it, it realises those parts as well. It plays on the sort of tropes of that type of film yeah. as well and delivers it really well. And I thought the best thing it did for me that, that really sort of, um, what's the word, like a sort of kind of connected with me in a way was the, just this sort of like the way it portrays those really important and intimate sort of powerful friendships that you have in your life when you're that young age yeah. that are so fleeting yet they're so important to you that when you grow up even in a couple of years time from that time you won't have that friendship anymore that friendship will never be reconnected again that's gone it's in the past that's what it is but it's still so powerful in shaping who you are and how you progress in your life which I thought had done immaculately I thought that was really interesting I mean it's nowhere near as good but it did remind me a bit of uh, Marvin Collar that summer of, of music kind of making a difference to who you are and as you say, even though you might not, that friendship might not maintain, it was kind of never forgotten, I think. It's one that I'd like to see. I've only seen it once. I'd like to see it again because I do think that the last act kind of reframes everything that comes before it. So everything yes. from the rave on and then you get those final scenes again of the, the last time that the two of them are going to be together. Like, as you clarify, the two like leads who are Christian Ortega and Lauren McDonald, who apparently are like real-life pals and how yeah. that chemistry really comes through. Which I think definitely friendship. comes through because, yeah. you know, you were talking about the tender scene in the bedroom. You said it absolutely feels normal. Mm -hmm. It feels real. Yeah. So. And then, like, at the end as well, where you get the kind of title cards telling you what happened happens to all the characters after the film ends and you know some of it is quite tragic and you know you, you then have that and I think going back and rewatching the earlier stuff with the knowledge of you know where these lives are headed I think gives it another dimension that maybe you wouldn't catch on a first view did either of you see it in the cinema yeah no I didn't see I didn't either and I really wish I had seen yeah. it in the cinema because I feel like that would have really enhanced the day of seeing yeah, it a lot I think, more like seeing it somewhere with a good sound system yeah. is, is crucial I would say like seeing that that central set piece it's yeah it's fantastic like that and then like ending it with like stand, the stand on the word the Larry Levan like stand on the word it was just yeah it was like a whole that whole last stretch was like really like smoothed over a lot of the cracks I think in the in the early going yeah yeah exactly well it was certainly one of the better in terms of film and dance music and what it was like to be in clubs at that time it absolutely captured it um, a film which talking about touched on the formulaic which I found was Wild Rose now, I don't know if either of you have seen that I, I did see I it missed yeah it. I missed it okay. my mum greatly enjoyed it but that's about <laughs> no, all I can it was a delightful film yeah. but I think you kind of it, it, I don't know what you felt Wesley but I felt you kind of knew that it was going almost yeah. right from the beginning pretty much um, I must admit I mean I didn't really know what to expect from it I was interested in it I was intrigued a little bit um, I came out I, I said I would I would say that I enjoyed it to an extent. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like the um, Jesse Buckley wasn't it. Yes, yeah, yeah, I felt right. like her performance, part of her performance was excellent. Other part of her performance just felt really hammy and sort of didn't land with me at all. I, th I think the accent didn't help. Well, um, you know, it's funny. We, I, I've been talking about this, and I think you're probably right because it just does slip, and that really may does. not seem important, but it really is important. Uh, exactly. You know, if someone's... We're not talking Sean Connery not caring that he's in Chicago no. and just going for Connery. Yeah. It's it's someone who's really attempting to capture the, the local accent and pretty much failing. Yeah, because she, she, there, is, there is moments in it where she really, she really sort of captures that um, sort of whirlwind nature of the character mm -hmm. that you would expect in being in that situation. She portrays that really well in parts. But then other parts it does, you're just like, you know exactly where it's going, it doesn't really shift from it. Um, it delivers a film that's 
good to see Scotland on screen but I think we have this conversation quite a lot when we yeah. see Scottish films we're just like oh it's great to see Scotland represented on screen and it's doing really well for cinema but it's still not lifted up to that or elevated to that standard that we come to expect from films now um, that's actually one thing I thought was interesting about Beats is that it had the, the kind of imprimatur of Steven Soderbergh on it he gave mm-hmm. them an executive that's right, credit, yeah. which made me think oh this maybe has the potential to travel beyond just oh it's nice to see you know Scotland on screen kind of thing and actually become something a bit more universal I think it felt going back to Beats briefly I think it felt like a European film like yeah. La Han or something like that you know yeah. that because that, um, the use of the camera it wasn't like just a drama, which is kind of like Wild Rose is, but not like a documentary either. It was it was used sparingly, but you know, really artistically. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, what, my problem, major problem with Wild Rose was that when there was the, the kind of big dramatic peak, if you like, um, it just finished really quickly. It was like one yeah. year later. There's this huge change, yeah, exactly. and everything's good, and then but we get one last chance, and then and then. I don't want to give it away. Do I want to give it away? Change up, get kind of at concert at the end when it's like everyone who has been in the film is in the audience. I mean, from the first thirty seconds, you know what's going to happen anyway. But I think I think that's that's a really good point because I think to give it some sort of credit, building up towards that point, it does lay really great foundations for the character and the character's struggles and what they're going through. And you just know when it gets to that peak, as you mentioned, you expect it to you hope that it's going to deliver something else that's mm-hmm. just going to tip over the edge into more of a character study and it doesn't it just hits that peak and then just falls off a cliff into exactly what you expect it to be which is I think a bit of a shame to be honest mm-hmm. um, but I've, I've seen a lot worse oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean I'm talking about it because of the uh, paucity of Scottish films this year um, talking of which I haven't seen this film I wonder if either of you have the Ang- Angus McFadden's Robert the Bruce no I missed it no nope. okay, well, well, well it wasn't playing that. in so many cinemas as, <laughs> oh, that's as, right. as SNP activists were so so <laughs> glad to remind us yep. yeah so this was I, 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 yeah it certainly didn't if it had been wide in cinemas every chance I would have gone to see it because I think last year we talked about the Bruce didn't we with the uh, walking yeah. yeah yeah which was I thought was a pretty good film but um, so I can't really comment on it. I haven't seen it, but it was just interesting that you know Angus McFadden's character from Braveheart uh, yeah. was was coming back. The sequel we were all waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was gutted that it didn't get seen by more people because yeah. I think it really was a real passion project. Oh for yeah, him. you can tell by his Twitter. He was yeah. <laughs> on it. Yeah. Um, so briefly for me, two films I saw at Glasgow Film Festival this year. One was a documentary on Peter Housen called Prophecy, which was fascinating. And I think it's been shown on um, uh, BBC um, Scotland, which we might talk about a little bit later. Um, but yeah, it's basically shows Housen um, painting this huge masterwork from beginning to sale to going overseas. But there was a few things that were just amazing in it. One, the way that he works and the fact that it, the camera was able to make that dramatic in itself. And it is, you know, he's, I mean, he's a huge man anyway. And there was something really physical about the way that he paints. But also, the the information that was on the amount of money he's, you know, his paintings go for and where they've been bought and around the world. I mean, he's quite, he's almost like a one-man um, arts industry himself. Incredible man. An incredible, humble man as well. When you saw him, you got the feeling he was never quite comfortable with this whole process. And wish <laughs> I hadn't been. But it is worth checking out. Uh, as I say it's on BBC. Um, if it's not on at the moment, it'll come on again. And what was that called again? It's called Prophecy. Prophecy. Um, 
Another one was I did a podcast with an uh, American director called Andrew Pete, and it was on a film called Scotch. Yeah. Um, and what was the, the subtitle to it? The Golden <laughs> Dram. The Golden Dram, yeah, that's right. And I, you know, this doesn't really sound like my thing, apart from it's about whiskey, which is, <laughs> you know, uh, fair enough. But actually, it was excellent. And it was, it, Andrew had studied in Scotland, and uh, when we did the podcast with him, he talks about how he was interested. Andrew's, I think, and on his own in a little um, student one bed flat or whatever. And he went to the local co-op or something, and he said, "Oh, um, I want to try whiskey, but I don't know anything about whiskey." And the guy sold him like a half bottle of Glenfiddich or something like that. And he said, "You know, I didn't just go back and down it. I, I really took my time." And said, oh, "This is really interesting," and, and it kind of started a, a love affair with um, Scottish whiskey. Scottish whiskey. Um, so what he does is he goes. It, it, he he talks about it being from kind of. Uh, green to glass, you know, that's the kind of, but it is, it does, it looks at all the different areas of the manufacture of whiskey, including um, at the highest end, how much it costs to get the bottles made, and you know, and the people, and it, it just makes you realise, if you didn't before, that um, this is one of um, Scotland's great industries, and um, you know, there are, at its heart, are people who are not just passionate about it, but just incredibly knowledgeable. He, he speaks to lots of the um, a master whiskey tasters, and uh, you know, have had the jobs for years and years, and um, who's still. And what little tip said that um, if you're going to buy a whiskey, buying anything over 18 years old is kind of useless because then the, the taste starts to go down. So, if you do that, you're just buying it to have it to sell going on. And ne nearly all the interviews, all the kind of master um, whiskey um, tasters, I'm sure that they've got a catchy name which I can't <laughs> remember. But, uh, and they kind of say the same thing. But um, it's, it's an interesting film. It won't be for everyone, but I, I found it a, a fascinating watch. And Andrew was great to have on here. Yeah, I, I, I saw that as well. And it oh, was very good. much, um, I felt like um, it was sort of in the same vein as, as anyone's seen um, Euro Dreams of Sushi. Oh, of, yeah. yeah, it sort of followed that sort of idea of sort of this um, humble, quiet legacy of um, some sort of, you know, expert in the field that Jim McEwen was obviously yes. that person and I thought that was really interesting part of the documentary I didn't think it quite got the balance right between either deciding if it wanted to follow that story exclusively or deliver the story of the entire community spirit of the whiskey industry I agree with that and I think it done both those things really really well but I don't think it tied it together perfectly but it, at the end of the day it was a really interesting I watch. think what he did was he, he um, found this character with an incredible story who as a boy, you know, I think maybe underage, but certainly as a boy was taken on at the distillery and brought up in this um, role to be a, a, a work in whiskey. Um, and his story was just fascinating. Yeah. You know, it was almost like a Cinderella story. That's right, yeah. Um, but, uh, a, but then there were all these other people that came and went, and but it would have been different. It maybe would have worked better as a three-part Television potentially, yeah, you know, to get to know the other guys as well and, and women as well. It was in the, in the absolute thing, the growth of women in, yeah. in, in the uh, in whiskey industry was interesting. Um, I, oh, that was good that you saw it because yeah. I don't think many people did. We saw it, um, my mum and I saw it actually um, at the View Cinema in Hamilton because it wasn't shown that many places no. apart from the Glasgow Film Festival. It was just us two and like one other person, I think in the screen um, yeah. but yeah I, I did really enjoy it and I enjoyed seeing that on the big screen bizarrely enough yes um, 
which was which was really great. It was beautifully shot. So beautifully yeah, shot. Yeah, I mean, really stunning. I mean, it's it's worth seeing for that alone, even if uh, whiskey's not your thing. <laughs> Um, and that's really my year in Scottish <laughs> film, which is pretty, pretty poor. But I know you guys, thankfully, have been to see plenty of other things. So, yeah. uh, Chris, let's start with yourself. Um, well, I think it's interesting, actually, that like, the, the two big ones that you mentioned in the Scottish film were, were Beats and Wild Rose and the common thread was music through all of them. Because I feel yeah. like that's been a massive thing this year. I feel yeah. like there's been so many films, either about musicians, featuring musicians, like concert films, getting big releases it really feel I don't know what it is that's caused this surge but this year alone you've had like Amazing Grace The Unearthed Aretha Franklin yes, yes, yes. from the mid 70s which is incredible we've had uh, Daydream Nation Sonic Youth's concert film which is actually filmed in Glasgow it was filmed at the mm-hmm. ABC mm-hmm. and showed at the Glasgow Film Festival Lance Bangs the legendary music video director came over and did a and a afterwards with Steve Shelley the drummer from Sonic Youth um, as part of that had Beyonce's Homecoming which caught like, her directorial debut caught her kind of epochal Coachella performance from last year over two weekends some amazing colour-coded editing stuff going on in that um, Anima Tom York's IMAX film directed oh, yeah, by Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson uh, like Jesus is King Kanye's own <laughs> IMAX film as well um, Western Stars Bruce Springsteen's directorial debut plugging his new film. I mean all of these are essentially promos for you know the albums that they're accompanying but it's still been interesting to see the such, documentary such, yeah, yeah <laughs> of course yeah such a surge um, the big one one that ties in with you know maybe can lead us in nicely to you know, more traditional film listing. Uh, Rolling Thunder Review, Martin Scorsese's Bob Dylan documentary, ah, which right. was like his other big release this year, which I'm sure we'll talk about, funded by Netflix, but uh, did get a limited cinema release. And it's amazing that it's so not what you would maybe have expected going into it. It's not as far from a straight, like, talking heads documentary, which Im- immediately is what it might appear to be. But it plays very fast and loose with the truth. There's a lot of um, fictionalised character work going on, like some false interviews. Sharon Stone plays herself in it and uh, gives an interview about having been, like, essentially a Bob Dylan groupie in the 70s, which is completely false. There are some Photoshop photos of her and, like, a Kiss t-shirt from the 70s. Like, they play, like... It's, oh, it's a really interesting thing that they do with it. I think because like so much of the tour that they were capturing at the time, so it's like it's capturing Dylan's Rolling Thunder review tour from the late seventies, which is you know round about the bicentennial in America, and it's post blood on the tracks, and he's trying to get, he's trying to do all this kind of weird Americana stuff again that he did. Is you'd maybe associate more with like the kind of Basement Tapes era, you know, mm-hmm. the band the kind of John Wesley Harding years. Um, doing this kind of weird excavation of American folk music he's going around painting his face white and you know there's loads of stories in the film about what that is some people think it's kabuki some people think it's because he saw Kiss you know it's like there's and it's it really plays that kind of like that kind of joker card throughout it you know where you're not really sure what's truth and what's fiction but it gets to this it gets to the point where it doesn't really matter because it's so adept at capturing the vibe and the kind of ramshackle nature of the night. You know, this is a tour that he took Alan Ginsberg on with him, John Baez was there, like, you know, Patty Smith is in the film, you know, like, Joni Mitchell turns up at one point, you know, it's, it's that, it really captures, like, a moment in time, um, and it's, it's an absolute joy to watch. Almost sounds like it should have been, you know, made by Christopher Guest or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, it's that, it's that real kind of, like, blurring the lines, you know, where you're not, like, you, the ground you think you're walking on just becomes unstable under your feet <laughs> that you have to kind of reevaluate and reframe everything you've seen so far just there'll be a certain i mean i'm sure everybody watching it will come to the realization at a certain point but like you know right from the get-go you're you're very clear that it's not just playing it completely straight you know it even has like dylan's first extended sit down interview in like about 14 15 years i think and again you can tell he's in on it like he's not yeah <laughs> he's not giving you the straight story 
Um, but yeah, no, like big year for Scorsese, I guess, because the the other one, the one that I don't think we can not talk about, is uh, the Irishman, okay. um, which only officially went up on Netflix the week that we record this, but it did get uh, again a limited cinema release um, a couple of weeks ago. And did you uh, see in the cinema? Saw in cinema opening night to a sold out crowd at the GFT. Wesley's yeah, yep, saw it at um, the BFI and NFT One, the big screen, to a sold out crowd as well. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what are your thoughts on it? It's incredible. It's like film of the year. Like, it's, it's unreal. It's unreal, actually. Scorsese's had an incredible decade. Like, especially the run he's on just now. The last run of three of, like, this silence in the Wolf of Wall Street is, like, the man's 77 now, you know? It's like... And his last decade, like, the 2000s, probably not his strongest decade. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I still think very good work, but, like, it's... The 2000s and the Gangs of New York, The Evader, and The Departed, which I don't know are making anybody's Scorsese top tens. Departed uh, is only Oscar win today. Yeah, yeah, true. Which is incredible because yeah. mm-hmm. it's not that good. I, I have a lot of time for The Departed. I don't think it's absolutely top tier Scorsese, but then this decade, I don't know, something's re energised them because the start, I mean, Shutter Island and Hugo to start with are both very good and very respectable as well, you know, really, you know, and all in different genres. Shutter Island's this kind of, you know, Val Luton homage, you know, kind of psycho thrower. Hugo was like a 3D children's film yes, yes. about the birth of cinema which features George Melier as a character um, but then from the Wolf of Wall Street on it's just it's been absolutely top tier you know I think he's made three of his best films in the last seven years it's just been, it's incredible The Irishman is the one that I think will maybe wrong foot most people going into it because I think you hear Scorsese's back working with De Niro and Pesci Harvey Keitel he's going to make Casino yeah he's going to make another Goodfellas Casino Mean Streets you know Pacino's in this one as well so it's it's very self-consciously playing with all these kind of you know icons of gangster cinema and the preconceptions that people bring in and you still hear it with Scorsese people still peg Scorsese as a gangster filmmaker even Mm. though he's made like you can count on one hand as you uh, say, like, just the yeah. films you've mentioned yeah. are so diverse in terms of their yeah. style. He's made like as many overtly religious films as he's made gangster films, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's extremely unfair, I think, to peg him as like the gangster guy, but it is, I mean, a lot of his best known stuff is in that world. And The Irishman is, it really feels like a reckoning with that. It's definitely like an old man's film. Um, right. And someone being reflective about not only their own work but the kind of the world that they've inhabited and what it means and do you think that's why he got this cast back together yeah definitely like the, 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 I don't think I think watching there's no doubt that you like it needs this cast to work you know it needs Pesci to have come out of retirement for it it needs De Niro back, back working with him uh, even having Pacino for this the first time Pacino's worked with Scorsese mm-hmm. um, which feels incredible yeah. I think but uh, again it, it, for this story in particular it really feels it so for any, anyone who hasn't watched it yet I'm sure anybody who wants to have seen it will have checked out on Netflix by the time that we get around to this but in case anyone doesn't know it's based on the the purportedly true memoir of Frank Sheeran who uh, claimed to be a mafia hitman uh, in the latter half of the 20th century uh, for a Philadelphia crime family and his big claim to fame is that he claims to be the guy who killed Jimmy Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa yeah. uh, uh, having been a good friend of Hoffa's and a protector of Hoffa's for several years um, so it's this kind of act of betrayal and it's narrated uh, in flashback by an aged Frank Sheeran who played by De Niro is now living in a retirement home uh, cut off from his surviving family no friends left they've all been killed or you know died of natural causes in the rare, rare minority case um, <laughs> And it's kind of a shadow history of the latter half of America's 20th century. You know, the Kennedys are involved, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, all the Hoffa's stuff with the unions, the labour movement and all that. And it's just, it's, it moves at 
a, a fair clip to begin with, you know, but then as, as the film goes on and this kind of funereal pall kind of starts to settle over it, it becomes this kind of, you know, having to grapple with your own legacy and, you know, the what you've done in life mm. and how those choices, like, come to define you and whether you're even able to recognise that, <laughs> I think, until it's too late and you're left sitting by yourself in shady pines. <laughs> <laughs> Wesley, I, I take it you thought it was great as well. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely spectacular. This incredible, sprawling masterpiece and I think drawing on what Chris is saying is the thing that really struck me was the fact that exactly what you had said Chris was that people just peg Scorsese as this mm. mobster sort of director in gangster films and um, people I think go into it maybe expecting that it's just going to be more of the same and I, I know I did in a little in a little way I was thinking what more can he actually do with this genre he's done it all he's done what he can do mm-hmm. and then he delivers this which is entirely different from what you expect it to be um, I just thought it was this sort of like closure a sort of goodbye to everyone based on that sort of part of his career and sort of finished it off really, really nicely. It was no sort of so kind of acceptance. Like, you know, like I know this is what you're thinking me, so I'm going to do it the best way I can. Going to tie it all up, and it's going to be perfectly done. And I think it was just no flashiness. It was all receding hairlines and flabby bodies. And um, yeah, there's it, none of the glamour of like exactly uh, Casino or Goodfellas. There's none of the flashiness. Like even no. they have the kind of the rise and fall arc, where at least it's fun on the way up, and yeah. then it's bad on the way down. This is just you know maintains that mm. level all the way through and the most, this is not glamorous at yeah all. the most glamorous thing in it is that all of the flashy ties they've got and that's <laughs> about it um, yeah I just thought it was this really sort of mournful deflection on ageing mm. and For non-flashy all. gangster clothes yeah um, it's, it really really is special um, and yeah seeing Scorsese direct Pacino um, while Pacino turns it up to peak Pacino yeah. oh, really? it up to 11 it's brilliant yeah. um, in a good way in a good yeah, way yeah. a really good way <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it's it really is something special, I think, and also actually having Joe Pesci have his time—he's finally had his time to shine, like and show everyone what it is that he's so great at. Because he's popped up in all of these things before, and we all watch him, and we all think he's great, mm-hmm. but he's never had that quiet moment to just deliver how. Yeah, he's actor always he been like is. a little bombshell that's yeah, going to go off in a film. Exactly, and um, just seeing him get that at the end of probably the end of his career—he's obviously coming out, come out of retirement for it um, again. I think he's only ever done that once before for some really. Shoddy. Yeah, he did a thing with like Helen Mirren That's and her right. husband yeah, right? yeah, like yeah. ten years ago. Helen yeah. Mirren, so Taylor Hackford, the director that Helen Mirren's married to, was, um, made a film about ten years ago, and they weirdly got Pesci to like, <laughs> so co-star with Mirren in it. Um, but that's the only thing he's done since like the late nineties. Yeah. I think, like, I think, like the Lethal Weapon four year was yeah. like kind of the last time Pesci was around. Even in comedies, he was that character. Yeah, 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 yeah. My cousin Vinny, he's gonna go. There's, yeah. there's more to him than sort of going to explode at any second yeah. and having a funny voice, and that really, really showed it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You see people seem to have forgotten particularly the you know the religious films of Scorsese you know I mean this is the man who cast David Bowie as Pontius Pilate yeah. you know, so, I, I, so but, wouldn't you get a nail Jesus to him <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's, it is interesting that people I suppose it's just lazy in a way you think oh yeah we know it's Scorsese is shorthand for you know the gangster movie yeah. and actually it's just he's just such an incredible you know he's not right. yeah he's not right I think what is he, he's I mean obviously it's a cliche to say Scorsese loves cinema but it's, it's the classic genres that he likes and he's done all of them he's done his musical he did New York New York he's done his like women's picture in very comes with Alice doesn't live here anymore he's done he effectively did his western with Taxi Driver which takes mm-hmm. kind of yeah. similar structure to the searchers you know he's done his boxing film he's done mm-hmm. the gangster films obviously he's done his like his Val Luton psycho thriller he's done the children's film he's really got he's got such a broad range and again it's the, the gangster films that have the most prominent iconography the ones that really enter kind of mainstream consciousness 
But they've got yeah. the good lines, maybe yeah, that's exactly. But Guy Ritchie didn't make, yeah, Guy Ritchie didn't get Phil Glass to score his film about the Dalai Lama, you know? Like, <laughs> there's there's so many now, more there's a film yeah, yeah, yeah. Much to see. There's there's so many more dimensions to Scorsese than this kind of like dorm room college poster, you know, like lad mag frat boy kind of image of like, you know, the the fun parts of yeah. Goodfellas and Casino. There's this there's every one of them has this kind of spiritual dimension to them and they're very clearly the product of the same kind of like moral philosophy and everything and outlook on the world like he's such a I mean he's, he is undeniably like one of the greats and this has been one of his strongest decades it's funded by Netflix yeah um, there's no sense that it should have been television it's definitely film it's oh it's definitely yeah. film I mean I, I've seen this week as well now that has gone up on Netflix there was a thing doing the rounds of like some guy come up with a viewing guide to turn it into a miniseries if you don't feel up to doing it in three and a half hours and it's like come on yeah, it's like well, what, yeah it's not like you're not being asked to sit down and watch all 13 hours about one in one go or mm. something like this you know it's like it's three and a half hours a half hour longer than the last Avengers film you know and the duration is so key of what it's trying to do. You need to feel the weight of time passing on it. Like it's so much about the passage of time and the, the weight of that and knowing these characters over this duration of time. You can't not do it in one sitting and have it have the same effect on you. But you know? it doesn't have a hulk. It doesn't have a hulk. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. Not not in the literal sense. No, no, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm well talking about another huge movie that came out recently, which I'm presuming that you guys have seen and I haven't and I'm it's my fault. The Joker. Or Joker. Uh, I, I, I didn't see Joker. Oh, <laughs> I didn't see it either. Oh, <laughs> Is that Ian? a must? <laughs> you did? Well, like, Ian, what did you think about it? Uh, I really liked it. Yeah. The reason I'm asking is because it seems to, when we're thinking about the most talked about movies, you know, of the year, and that's definitely one of yeah. the most talked about movies of the year. So, yeah, what did you think? Yeah, it was incredibly hyped, and, and that made me a bit worried, but um, I wanted to go and see it just because it looked it looked so good like it, it just looked like really stylish and really sort of dark um, but not in not in that sort of obvious uh, way and um, and yeah it was great it's all about uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance yeah. I think he really he really just takes takes the whole thing on his shoulders and, and carries it and he can because it's because it's Joaquin yeah I think I, there's a lot a lot gets read into you know how it's how the sort of the social issues of, of our time and, and trying to like you know be some lens on it I think maybe that's reaching a little bit there's there's some there's some fun you know interplay between our sort of you know post post truth existence um, maybe and, and and how you know maybe white working class America's kind of oppressed and, and might explode mm-hmm. um, but I don't think that's really no, the film doesn't deal with that as such. It just kind of yeah. nods in that direction in a sort of, you know, if if you think this is scary, then look out your window and and think about how scary is actually your life right now. So yeah, well, from, from the outside, uh, from the outside, not having seen it, the two things I've heard say about it is, oh well, it's it's very violent and there's no um, comeuppance for the character, and you go. It's the Joker. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's still the character. Don't you know what goes on? And a lot of people maybe won't know what happens with this character. Another thing is, we talked last year about, oh, it's now gone from my head. Wacking Phoenix film. You were uh, never really here. You were never really here, of course. Um, which almost seemed like, without having seen it, there are similarities in those characters. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Like, okay. the, 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 the darkness is, is like, 
the darkness that he, he kind of portrays in, in the Joker is like much deeper than what you would ever imagine from it's, it's not just of like trying to explain the Joker's origin story and that he's like this really tortured soul it's not as it's, it's not as like shallow as that he, he goes really really deep with it mm-hmm. and knowing that he did uh, you were never really here and having seen that you can see the the, the lineage there for sure uh, interesting so and a lot of people said that it owes a lot to King of Comedy kind of deliberately which I know you're a fan of Chris yeah. so why haven't you seen it that's I, I don't because I can't be fucked with superheroes yeah, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. See, this, is really like this prejudice has now crossed yeah. <laughs> you're sitting in the Scorsese camera and all fear grinder yeah. rides and it's, yeah. but if I thought there was one that this would have been no do you know what I mean like like I get I get the interest in it and I get people seeing it but I'm just like can we not just have that story with like someone not dressing up as a clown you know can we not just have like just a nice like mid-budget adult thrower you know where it's just Joaquin Phoenix which we had we had you were never really <laughs> yeah good, that's so what's interesting uh, to yeah, me so I didn't really know why we had to have it again with the yeah I don't because know, I just, you, you put him in that makeup and it suddenly the box office goes through exactly, the roof Slim yeah. Ramsey unfortunately yeah. would never have got it exactly yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I still, it's just the kind of creative team behind it. The thought of the like, like the guy who made the Hangover dealing with uh, you know, yeah, like, no, no, hot button issues and stuff just didn't really didn't really appeal to me. That's but, interesting. Um, no, as I say, yeah. the, the dealing with the with the hot button issues is not something to see it for. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but for yeah, for looking Phoenix's performance in it, then yeah, like I love like I love Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. I can't argue with that. And like yeah, I'll probably see it at some point. And was it something you could have not deliberately avoided, but just you didn't fancy? Not necessarily. I mean, again, as we've discussed before, I'm not a great lover of superhero films. Um, If if any, it's the ones I've watched would have been the the recent Batman stuff, which Mm -hmm. I have enjoyed. Well, not the recent one. Sorry, I'm going back to the Dark Knight trilogy. Not that recent. Yeah. yeah. so it was something that <laughs> not I, Batman versus Superman yeah exactly not, not quite that I'm um, a Sam Raimi Spider-Man <laughs> um, the original Batman Adam West so I never really um, it sort of crossed my mind but again as, as Chris said the creative team sort of really put me off it and the idea of them treating these issues especially in the sort of modern day of film of, of mental health issues and, and the stuff that goes along with that I just think it just made me really apprehensive and uneasy and I, I really wasn't wanting to watch it generally speaking but then as it, as it went on and all, a lot of the reviews came out and a lot of people I knew that went to see it that maybe really heavily went in on it and didn't really like it, um, I sort of felt a little bit vindicated, like, hmm, okay, see, didn't expect to enjoy it, so I'm going to avoid it. And then surprisingly, quite a few people who um, I know personally who are really, really um, big advocates of positive mental health and, mm-hmm. and dealing with that sort of stuff, who went in really apprehensive, came out and said that it treated it extremely well with a lot of care and a lot of caution. Yeah. And then that sort of flipped it for me and I was like well actually maybe this is something I should go and see but by this point it was so far yeah. on I just couldn't find the time to actually get along to see it so it's definitely something I'm going to watch um, yeah. in the comfort of my own home but um, yeah okay so after what you've just said Avengers Endgame what do you think no I'm joking I'm kidding I'm kidding I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, so what I'm about 27 <laughs> films behind the Avengers series at this point I wouldn't have I'll fill you in really so Wesley have you got another one that you really want to tell us about well, from this year? there is there is one which I'll I'll maybe go into in a minute but there's two I want to sort of pair together that mm-hmm. I want to sort of bring out because um, two of the standouts for me this year um happen to follow teenage girls at mm-hmm. the different stages of their lives and those were um, 8th grade and Booksmart and the reason I'm pairing them together they're not exactly the same films but 
in eighth grade, you've got the lead character, Kayla, who is around 13, and she's about to graduate from, what is it in America? Middle school, maybe? Mm, Going into yeah. high school. Um, and in Booksmart, you've got two of the lead characters, Amy and Molly, who are around 17, 18, who are graduating from high school. So they're just leaving, going on to another part of their life. And Kayla in eighth grade is leaving one part of her life going into this part of the life that the other characters in the other film have just left. So they both came out around the similar time this year. Um, and I just think they're both really, really brilliant films in their own way. Um, Eighth Grade, which was made by Bo Burnham mm-hmm. um, of sort of comedy YouTube fame. Um, I've got the soundtrack album. Uh, yeah, there you go, because it's animated. I exactly. Seen the film. Well, I thought the film was honestly brilliant. I was really skeptical at first going into it because I thought this is a film with a 13 year old girl lead. And Bo Burnham, the comedy YouTube sensation, mm. is the guy that's directing and wrote this film. How is he going to treat this, really? Um, but he did say that he wrote, he wrote lots of characters for this film and he just so happened to end up concentrating on this 13-year-old girl um, purely because he was a, she was a person that he felt he could most relate to emotionally mm-hmm. and felt like her story was the most important. So he didn't go in intending to write a story about a, you know a female or a woman from that sort of perspective. Um, and I think that sort of comes through in screen because he really manages to sort of get the balance and the nuance of these sort of specific challenges that are only unique to young girls growing up, um, while also sort of um, being universally relatable to people of different eras and different ages. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, the idea of it basically is Kayla is, is graduating from middle school, going into high school, um, she's obviously really apprehensive, she feels like a bit of an outcast, she doesn't have many friends at all, um, people see her as a little bit weird and so, stuff like that, but she's very, very, very much involved in the sort of social media world that mm-hmm. all of these children of this age are. Um, and she makes YouTube videos, um, but she doesn't get many, very many views. She maybe gets 10 or 15 views. Most of the people viewing them are probably people at her school who are mocking her for it, that sort of thing. Um, and she lives at home with her dad. Um, you don't know what's really happened to her mum. It's just her and her dad, this nice sort of like family dynamic. Sort of in the same vein of the Age of Seventeen, which came out a few years yes, ago, and was yes. quite addressed that quite well. But this is a lot more kind of quiet and unassuming, and it's just yeah, for me, it's just really, really great. I think it speaks about the sort of pressure on children um, who are born into this age of social media. And Bo Burnham said something at the Q and A that I went to see this year um, at the GFT, which I thought was really, really great. Um, and it was something that was sort of he basically what he basically said was that kids these days are dismissed as being self obsessed but they're actually just self-conscious. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's something that's really, really stayed with me because it's such a simple concept to understand, yeah. but it's not a simple concept to really get to the stage that you actually think about it. That all of these children that are going around on social media and Snapchat and making YouTube videos and constantly being immersed in this world, they they aren't self-obsessed. They're not doing it because they want to be seen. They want to be seen and heard, and they, the way they feel they need to be seen and heard is through this medium Mm -hmm. and it addresses it perfectly and it's really 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 well made and it's got this amazingly pulsating score from Anna Meredith as you mentioned throughout it which complements it really well excuse me really well and on the other hand you've got Booksmart as well which is basically just a sort of classic coming of age last night high school comedy film Um, but it people sort of lazily compared it to Superbad I think it's a lot better than Superbad and Superbad was very of its time I must admit it's not dated well it's not dated well at all however this um, Booksmart really brings something completely fresh and new to that sort of genre um, it sort of brings it right up to date without sort of feeling tokenistic um, it's got all your sort of in- inclusivity and progressiveness throughout it but it never feels like it's forced 
um, and flies the flag for all these various subcultures, sort of groups and cliques um, that form throughout school. And again, basically the premise of that is that these two sort of um, bookish girls who really have never engaged in any sort of um, after-school activities in terms of going out drinking with their friends or going out socialising, they just stick together, the pair of them, um, and they just study, study, study and try and get through school because they want to get into a good school. And then very, very early on in the film, they realise that all of these other people who have been out drinking, who have been out sleeping around, who have been out doing all of these other things, have actually got into the same university that they've been trying to get into, the same colleges that they've been trying to get into. And they're like, well, what was the point of this? We've been knuckling down all these years and everyone else is doing the same thing. This is our very, very last night before we graduate. We need to go out and just go and enjoy ourselves. Um, and as I say, that um, it really flies a flag for all of these sort of little different, weird sort of subcultures of people. Um, but the best thing about it is it never makes any of those characters ever change who they are at any point throughout the film. They basically stay the same throughout the entire film and the only change that they experience is that they basically learn from each other and understand and accept each other's differences. Um, and it's also like riotously funny throughout the whole film. Um, it was directed by Olivia Wilde. It was directed by Olivia Wilde. Well? Yeah, I think it might have been written by her as well. Um, and, you know, going into it, people would have been a bit sort of sniffy about it before it was released saying, oh, it's just going to be the sort of super bad for the PC generation and all this nonsense but actually it was really well received upon release and I just think it captures that whole obviously you can't relate to it entirely because it's American but it captures that whole experience and whirlwind nature of youth at that age um, Sometimes just, I think British well certainly I did um, uh, identify with those films more because they're not our experience Exactly yet. yeah um, and I just thought it was really interesting that two of the films that really stayed with me this year were both focused on the experiences of sort of teenage girls going through mm-hmm. um, either into high school or from high school yeah. um, both from entirely different directors both from one man one woman um, but both really of their time in a good way not in a way that I expected to ever date um, but they're both great films and I would really urge people to check them out because they're excellent films I think for anyone of any age to really watch Chris have you are they ones you've seen I miss both of them well, uh, I think they were both quite limited well not limited really but I don't think they were around for very long no, I just uh, yeah, okay. like, missed my chance to see them in the cinema but we'll, we'll catch up so catch up. have you got uh, uh, others that you're burning to, to um, tell us about yeah well, well burning could be one of them actually <laughs> burning is uh, well, I don't know if that was an intentional one but yeah burning of course was it was very good yeah uh, <laughs> Lee Chang Dong the Korean director um, made, adapted uh, her humor Kami short story the Elf Va- uh, from the Elephant Vanishes uh, Barn Burn uh, and turned it into this kind of transplanted the action from Japan to South Korea specifically the kind of uh, area around the, the border with North Korea so just, just around the demilitarized zone and made this really um, kind of haunting meditative again like tap, very tapped into like contemporary youth culture and stuff as well and kind of the energy of kind of you know not really knowing what you're doing with your life and that kind of existential angst and um, the kind of the tension that comes with it as well and the anger I think it really taps into a real seam of anger as well over kind of the world that we're kind of being left and handed um, stars uh, Stephen Yoon I think who would probably be the best the biggest name in it who's a, a Korean American actor uh, who is he in The Walking Dead? Is he in? That rings a bell actually I think so, yeah. Yeah. Can't yeah. he's in a bunch of stuff that I haven't seen but he's uh, <laughs> but he's got uh, amazing like star quality you know he's got incredible charisma and he's um potentially uh, a serial killer it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> long and short of it it's never really good it's left very ambiguous but uh, he kind of comes into the lives of like a young Korean couple um, 
and then the the woman goes missing uh, about halfway through, and uh, yeah, kind of dealing with the ramifications of that. There's a stunning central shot. It's like a long and un- uninterrupted shot oh, yeah. set to a Miles Davis piece from the soundtrack oh, to Left wow. of the Gallows, the uh, Louis Malle film, um, which is just round about the border of um, of South and North Korea, where the the, um, the central female character like dances, you know, basically in silhouette to to this, you know point in the late 50s jazz and it's just yeah, it's one of the scenes of the year for me but yeah, I don't like brought it up because you said burn so <laughs> <laughs> we can talk more in depth about a couple other bits and pieces um, yeah well um, Wesley talking about I guess like two different films that really honed in on the experience of a young woman I guess two of mine are two that really honed in on the experience of being Brad Pitt um, <laughs> so uh, I mean again talk about it, like what a banner year for Scorsese what a banner year for Brad Pitt yeah, like, yeah, yeah. absolutely career defining performances so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I guess is the obvious one mm-hmm. um, like Tarantino's latest which again like The Irishman got attracted with a bad takes magnet <laughs> there are so so many bad faith readings of it I think and I mean obviously for obvious reasons Tarantino can be a dick with, you know, <laughs> on screen and off screen on screen and off screen yeah it's kind of hard I think for a lot of people to, to give him credit when it's due just because of the nature of his personality and yeah. it can be so abrasive um but uh, well, just a beautiful film. Like once upon a time, Hollywood. It's got that kind of real air of melancholy and that kind of sense of you know, like a time just slipping through your fingers, kind of thing. You know, this like era that's not going to last, and maybe you don't even realize as you're in it how little time you have left of it. And um, you know, this kind of passing of the torch from one generation to another it focuses on. Um, a western star Rick Dalton the star of, he's kind of gone to see it a little bit he's played by Leonardo DiCaprio and he's very paranoid about his position in the new Hollywood which is epitomised by his new neighbours Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate mm-hmm. uh, this is the summer of 1969 so I'm sure anywhere anyone with a cursory awareness of modern American history can kind <laughs> no of see where it's going, going. <laughs> well you do and you don't I think because okay. um, you know obviously Tarantino is uh, has proven himself fond in recent years of rewriting uh, historical <laughs> outcomes um, without giving too much away about where the film ends up but uh, yeah Rick Dalton and his uh, stuntman played by Brad Pitt who is the kind of the real authentic deal where where DiCaprio can only try to be you know the tough guy on TV Pitt's portrayed as you know is effortless to him and he's the cool one and it's, it's really such like a like TV's the fall guy yeah yeah absolutely yeah, <laughs> absolutely but he's um it's such a showcase for Pitt's charisma, you know, just that real, like, absolute oh, movie star okay. thing that you just can't, like, you can the act, you can act as hard as you like, but some people are just born with that, and, like, it's just, it's one of the great movie star performances of this decade, it's just so, it's the kind, you know, it's like, I mean, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but you watch Cary Grant, and you watch Cary Grant, you think he's playing Cary Grant, but there's yeah. so much effort goes into making it look that effortless, and make it look like... You know, it's just a natural. It's just him existing on screen, and that's the kind of thing that reminded me of with Brad Pitt. You look at him, you think he's just being Brad Pitt, but there's so much work and so much craft goes into making it look that easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the rest of the film as well also fantastic. You know, it's this kind of fantasia of like again that summer. It's a real time and place thing. Production design is unreal, like unparalleled. They basically recreated Hollywood in nineteen sixty nine to the tiniest detail wow. um, just a massive ensemble cast you know you've got 
Pitt and DiCaprio. You also got Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. You got Al Pacino again. You got Emil Hirsch. You got Margot Qualley. Dakota Fanning as Squeaky Frome. <laughs> uh, you got Lena Dunham as a member of the Manson family as well. You got Kurt Russell. You Bruce Dern, Timothy Olyphant. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge cast, and they all do very well by it. And it's again I think people heard Tarantino making a film set around the Manson family and were immediately hackles were raised and were like oh how tasteless is this going to be mm. but he actually brings it to a really lovely place there, I, 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 still, <laughs> I still I still have I still have questions about some stuff in the, the final act there's a level of extreme violence that I think it goes beyond what was necessarily needed but again case, but yeah. you know if you're going into a film well, that's a major part of it yeah it's not going to be, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Tarantino. It's, it's not really. It's, it's not so much being squeamish about the violence, so much as the way it's directed. I think is how we put it. Again, without wanting to get into spoilers, if people haven't seen it, there's there's a a level of cruelty and vindictiveness that mm. I feel like I get in his head why he's doing it, but I think he hasn't necessarily thought through how it looks on screen. Almost kind, have, of, kind of horror. Yeah, to have like Brad Pitt repeatedly smash a young woman's face against the wall mm. is like, you know, I, I, I get why, like, in the film you kind of get why it's happening, but you're like, this is not a I hate to use the phrase not a good look but it's not, it's, it's not a good yeah, look yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah no the, the, I think it's kind of ultimately redeemed by the kind of the final moments of it which are some of the most genuinely moving things that I think Tarantino's ever put on screen so the big problem I've heard from other people that have seen it is the treatment of Bruce Lee not a problem yeah I, I mean it's not my place to say do you know because yeah. like, it's not guys like me that are complaining about it it's yeah. not like, it's yeah, not like white middle class Scottish guys that are complaining about the treatment of Bruce Lee in it I don't think he comes across badly in it at all. You know, I think he, he is like, I mean, Bruce Lee's persona has always been, you know, supremely confident. And I think mean, you're, you're talking about movie star charisma. Yeah. There was really no one, oh, no, that's not true. But, you know, Lee was the kind of guy who people who um, didn't follow martial arts films still had on their wall back yeah. in the day. He yeah. was a huge star. But uh, I think like the issue with it is because like he's, he's portrayed almost more as cocky than confident in, right. in, in a way that leads to kind of a feel like he can be taken down so the, the central set piece with Bruce Lee in it is basically like Brad Pitt mouths off to him on set and Bruce Lee challenges him to a fight and it's like best of three and they each win a round and then okay. it's, so called it's, off. Like it's called off okay. before yeah so like of yeah and yeah. I think the, the contention is oh it's ridiculous that this 50 something stunt guy could hold his own against Bruce Lee right. and okay. but the way that they frame it is that like he only basically is able to beat him in one round because he's, you know, Bruce Lee's shown his hand in the first one so he knows the kind of tactics to go for so he's thinking through. Then you're also, it sets up this kind of almost superhuman element to Brad Pitt's character which you need for the third act to land fully. Mm -hmm. I, think. Yeah, I think there is a reason that it's there. Again, as another case of Tarantino writing something down and not fully thinking through the ramifications of it like the violence in the third act. Like, it, it probably sounds great in his head and he hasn't considered yeah I don't think he does either and I think honestly I kind of think that's what you need at yeah, a certain level is to just totally not, not care like about how something's going to be received and just go for it because obviously not every aspect of it's going to land but the risk that you take to, to make that happen like can have payoffs you know that maybe you hadn't anticipated so I don't know but well, it's I, like, interesting yeah. enough I mean I remember the same things being charged with um, Scorsese with Casino yeah. that it had yeah. gone too far and you know the the camera lingered too long on some mm -hmm. of the certain scenes yeah. and that. So I guess it just 
it's one of the things that happens in the big film. Yeah, absolutely. I th- yeah, I think definitely when you're... Well, one of Scorsese's big things, I mean, we touched briefly on his kind of Marvel comments. One of his big things that came out of that was talking about the elimination of risk mm-hmm. at a level of studio films where they just want to sand off all the rough edges and have nothing that any, anyone could find objectionable so they can sell it to the biggest possible audience. I think when you have distinct individual voices like Scorsese's, like Tarantino's, they're not going to be for everyone, you know, no, no, and no. they are to a certain degree a risk despite their track record and despite, you know, like having made all these massive films that are widely beloved in the past. Every film they come out with carries this undercurrent of potential failure because they're trying something that maybe nobody else is trying, you know, yeah. and you're going to potentially alienate a section of your audience. And I think that's probably what raises people's hackles more than anything else about these two filmmakers yeah. in particular is that they do still carry that element of like you're never quite sure what you're going to get yeah. from you know? yeah which I think Wolf of Wall Street was, it was accused of as well yeah yeah against the whole like endorsement or depiction thing yeah, you know yeah, it's, yeah. it feels like we have the same argument every year about yeah. like at least one film but like, yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned yeah. two yeah. Brad Pitt performances so the other great Brad Pitt performance of the year is in James Gray's Ad Astra um, which is the kind of uh, the the sad boy emo brother to Interstellar I guess um, so definitely much, like more, my, much more my kind of thing I want you to um, see that yeah. Yeah. listen if you ever wanted a space movie to make you cry several times and, and bring up your unresolved dad issues god this is this <laughs> um, so Brad Pitt's a, an astronaut he is um, uh, tapped for a mission uh, his own father also an astronaut played by Tommy Lee Jones went missing several years earlier after a, a mission kind of went out of radio contact uh, they've now picked up a signal at the edge of the solar system that they believe might be being sent by Tommy Lee Jones' character and they ask Brad Pitt to go and see if they can track him down and bring him back and it raises all these kind of Freudian, you know, dad issues. Go and save your dad. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And it, it's structured, the, the structure of it kind of borrows heavily from Apocalypse Now with Tommy Lee Jones as like the kind of Kurtz figure. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And Brad Pitt as, as Martin Sheen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's devastating. <laughs> it's absolutely devastating. It's the most like... Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it was a weird thing. I mean, I don't know, like, James Gray is a kind of weird figure because he's, he's one of these guys that it feels like 20 years ago he would have been working at a steady clip and making these kind of mid-budget you know classically styled Hollywood movies and there'd be we'd be getting several in a day I think we've had like three James Gray films this decade he's an again immaculate craftsman fantastic director adored in France you know what these guys what are these other films so he made uh, this decade he's also made The Lost City of Zed uh, with Robert Pattinson Charlie Hunnam he made The Immigrant with Marion Cotillard and Joaquin Phoenix which never really got a proper release over here because of you know uh, Weinstein Company finalings Uh, he made Two Lovers with Gwyneth Paltrow and Joaquin Phoenix he's worked a lot with Joaquin Phoenix Uh, We Own the Night uh, Little Odessa, The Yards. Uh, oh, yeah, so he like made this. a few, a few kind of gangstery films as well. Kind of not dissimilar to Scorsese, often New York set. Um, he comes from, I think, a Russian American background rather yeah. than Italian American. But again, you, know, you can see the kind of Scorsese influence, particularly in the, the early stuff. Um, but and again, like Scorsese, comfortable hopping about from genre to genre. You know, going from this kind of turn of the century jungle exploration from the Lost City of Zed to you know his own kind of two thousand and one. You know, um, yeah. now kind of effort. Um, but yeah, no, I get, like can hardly hardly recommend it. I get great, like, it looks incredible. The cinematography by Hoy van Hoytema, who also shot Interstellar for Christopher Nolan. Um, but yeah, I I, I, would say, I keep bringing up Interstellar, and I think this is definitely I definitely prefer it to Interstellar. It's definitely okay. got that additional kind of element of I think psychological complexity and, and genuine emotion that I I don't often get from Christopher Nolan. I think 
Um, no good cases. <laughs> no good cases in this one, no. Uh, a killer monkey, though. So ah, <laughs> now you're talking! A killer monkey in a car chase on the moon, so... Uh, yeah. Spaceman and a killer monkey, and that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for. Um, yeah, so I uh, heartily recommend it. And so, again, it got an IMAX release. I think that was the staggering thing as well. It was just the idea of seeing a James Gray film in IMAX was enough curio- to pique my curiosity. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely loved it. Uh, yeah, okay. heartily recommend it. So we're just about an hour in, and uh, I feel you've got lots more to tell us, but um, if you could do so, maybe a bit precise, because I really would like to talk about some of the best stuff of the decade uh, at the end before we finish. So uh, are there other films that you really want to um, tell us about from the year? Yeah, very, very quickly. I think one of my films of the year, Irishman aside, was If Beale Street Could Talk. Now that came out very, very much at the start of the year, Mm -hmm. so it's easy to forget that it happened. much like was the same when Moonlight came out I think as yes. well um, but I mean it's a Barry Jenkins film so it would have taken something spectacular for it not to be on my, yes. my top spot um, as with all his films it's just pure visual poetry um, I mean the entire film is just one sort of slow dance um, like focusing on really I suppose the endurance of love um, and sort of racial tensions that come along with that and that sort of period of America um, and I saw it twice I saw it with a really quiet audience and I saw it with an audience who were really really involved in the first quarter and sort of reacting in all the right places and laughing really quite heavily at the sort of subtle jokes that were there until it reaches the sort of living room scene um, and then the sort of tone just completely shifts as soon as she um, there's another scene as well when she, as soon as she utters the words unbow your head sister um, which is also quite famous in the book itself um, just the whole tone of the film completely shifts it's magical and the score by Nicholas Patel is just one of the most evocative scores I've, I've listened to in a long, long time. Um, and then I suppose there's not really too much else. I think I saw Pain and Glory, um, Pedro, um, I always kind of mispronounce his name, Am- Amadovar, Amadovar, Amadovar I Pedro think, Amadovar, yeah. yeah. Um, bursting with colour, really, yeah. really reflective, sort of self-reflective, um, sort of rich, beautifully paced film with um, Antonio Banderas delivering an excellent performance who sort of forgetting how good he can be it's a kind of biographical film autobiographical very, very autobiographical yeah um, it's also extremely funny as well um, mm-hmm. but some of the quiet moments throughout it are the best um, and then I suppose finally for me one of the most interesting films of the year although it didn't hit in all the right places was Bait um, I mean Bait is this sort of um, film about sort of the to and fro and the push and pull of um, people in a sort of Cornish fishing community. Ah, um, I heard about this. Yeah, yeah so um, basically the sort of people who are coming in and they're sort of setting up shop, if you like, in, in Cornwall and they're bringing in touris- tourism into the area, which is benefiting the area, but it's also um, at loggerheads with the people who live there. Um, it's very, very um, like focused on the sort of social tensions, but it's it's shot in um, I think it's a 16mm was um, a Bolex uh, a Bolex camera that the director Mark Jenkins recovered from I don't even know where he got it it's probably, it dates back to like the 30s or 40s yeah. um, and it doesn't record sound so he had to post sync all the sound That's so right. you almost get this aspect of like it having been dubbed into you know your own language <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it gives us really eerie quality like for me it was very much like sort of FW Murnau meets a little bit of Fritz Lang um, right. with a little bit of sort of Lynchian in there I suppose which is a bit cliche but um I mean, I think it was really interesting for me. I felt like five minutes in, I could see how the entire film was gonna was gonna pan out, which sort of took the sort of shock value away from it for me. And it was sort of slightly plodding in places, and I felt like it stretched a little thin, even though it was only an hour and a half. 
However, I admired so much about it and I'd rather like someone makes that sort of ambitious film yeah, yeah. than doesn't. And some of the sequences in it were like filled you with so much dread and it was really, really, really well done. And I think like I saw it in a packed cinema audience um, down at um, in the Barbican um, and all of the cinema audience completely sold out um, all sort of laughed, reacted, gassed in mm-hmm. all the appropriate places save for one like moment of really misplaced laughter towards the end when we showed the smash mirror scene yeah, yeah. and someone just cackled out loud at it and it was a bit like hmm um, but I think it's really easy for these types of films to be completely dismissed as like art house fodder just for critics um, but and you can't really argue with that sometimes but I felt like it worked really well for the general, general audience which is shown in terms of how well it's done um, and my girlfriend I went to see it with as well who might not have been her cup of tea initially um, and I felt like I was dragging her to it um, at the end of it she was just mesmerised like yeah. she was speechless she was like that was absolutely brilliant and she said if I'd saw that at home that would not have worked for me yeah. because I saw it in the cinema like that I've enjoyed it right. so much that's and I think that's just testament to seeing films on the big screen yeah on the big screen yeah Chris yeah I would echo all three of those they're all probably among the best films I saw this year like Bill Street Could Talk was my favourite film of the year until I saw The Irishman so would definitely echo that and yeah Bait I loved as well I thought it was again something that could have just descended into gimmickry but you know like it, it was a good match of like form and content I thought it actually made sense this kind of you know because it's all about dealing with tradition and you know the, how that comes up against modernity and you know and so when you have like this kind of old format of filmmaking kind of appended to a modern day setting like it kind of uh, it staged that really effectively Pain and Glory also thought was great I think it was there were parts where I was like it's, it feels like kind of fairly um, Dover on, on autopilot but there's this yeah, one extraordinary yeah extraordinary central set piece where uh, Antonio Banderas playing essentially Almodovar is um reunited with his first boyfriend who he hasn't seen for 35 years um, and it's just a massive coincidence as often happens in, in on the Dover films uh, that brings them back together and they have this like reunion set piece in the middle and it's just it's such a gut punch I made the uh, perhaps not wise decision of seeing it five days after a breakup I was totally <laughs> like it was a very precisely calibrated wow. gut punch <laughs> so uh so yeah, that really hit hard. Along similar lines, it's uh, like digging so, in that Randy Newman album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah Speaking of Randy Newman, actually, <laughs> very thematically similar, did the music for uh, Marriage Story, the new Noah Baumbach film, which is kind of ironically titled because it's actually about the divorce uh, and the <laughs> process that uh, follows it. So Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson play a couple who are in the process of separating, and the film just kind of tracks that process uh, in all its painstaking detail unlike something like Blue Valentine from a few years back yes, it's hilarious it's very very right. funny because uh, I mean Bombax a funny guy you know his films are funny generally he generally makes comedies um, and it, it is very funny it is also heartbreaking because I mean you're watching you, you get to know these people you get to like them and you, get to, you know and you see them just kind of realise that they can't make it work kind of thing so it is it's very like it's, it's not a tough watch in the sense that like you know it's grueling but there are moments where you know it's very, it, get, it does get very emotional and it's very adept at when those two kind of tones you know where you're able to laugh at kind of the ridiculousness of some of the situation but at the same time you know really feel what they're going through I think is uh, definitely one of Bombat's more accessible and warmer kind of films that has been put off by the kind of abrasiveness of some of his, his earlier stuff like something like Margot the Wedding is definitely not like in, in the same kind of lane as that it's definitely a much kind of warmer film I I've heard it compared to kind of Annie Hall right? yeah Annie. I think it's definitely like like now that Woody Allen has become he who must not be named, uh, I think Bombax really like filling that void. I think quite quite adeptly, you know that kind of like 
New York comedy kind of urban sophisticates yes, uh, kind yes, of thing. Yes. Um, and this one as well, yeah, it does the whole the Annie Hall thing of splitting between New York and LA and all that kind of thing, and the you know comment on the differences between them. So yeah, definitely if if that's if that's your kind of if that's the kind of thing you're into, then yeah, definitely marriage story. I would I would strongly recommend. Um, also like to give a shout out to Chain for Life, which is kind of a I guess I kind of oddity. It doesn't really fit into anything. Uh, so it's a uh, uh, Aaron Schimberg, an American director, who made it, and it's kind of a. Uh, I guess it, it, it's mainly about representation of people with disabilities in the film. It stars um, uh, Adam Pearson from Under the Skin, who is yeah. the um, people who saw Under the Skin remembers the guy. I think it's neurofibromatosis is the name of the condition he has. Is he's yes. the guy who Scarlett Johansson picks up and lets go. Uh, yeah. He has the facial tumors. Um, so he plays one of the actors on a film um, that a European director is making. He's making his American debut in this. So it's a film within a film thing, and he's making a kind of horror film along the lines of something like Freaks or something like this, where he's casting people with actual physical disabilities. Um, and you know, a standard you know good-looking American actress is brought in to be the kind of damsel in distress in it. And it's all about her kind of relationship with Adam Pearson's character and him being very kind of urbane and witty and all that and. Uh, really diffusing your expectations of what how disability how disability is represented on film, which makes it sound very worthy. It's not. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's very. It's, it almost reminded me of like Peter Strickland films, something like In Fabric, which also came out this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Day, or Barbarian Sound Studio. It kind of plays with pastiche a, a little bit. There's you know it sets up these kind of generic expectations. It feels like it could veer into horror at places. There's kind of background news built-ins about serial killer on the loose and all this kind of stuff, and it kind of feels like it could tip over into genre territory, but never quite goes where you expect it to end up. Um, it's very satisfying. It's uh, kind of maybe slipped under a lot of people's radar, but I can definitely recommend seeking it out if you get a chance. I think it's getting a Blu-ray release earlier in, uh, early next year, and it's uh, it's fantastic. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the other one I would give one shout to before we, we leave this year behind is uh, Claire Denis' High Life, which is her first English language film in almost twenty years. She's a mm-hmm. hugely acclaimed French director who made you know like Beau Travail and Bastards and uh, most recently Let the Sunshine In with Julia Binoche. And it's uh, again like I had asked, a good year for high concept sci-fi. So it's about a, a, a prison ship, basically a ship of death row prisoners who have been in lieu of being executed on Earth, have been sent on a mission to. Uh, basically go inside a black hole because it feels like almost certain death anyway so you might as well send prisoners right, okay. um, and uh, Robert Pattinson stars Juliet Binoche is the kind of mad oh, wow. scientist on board with them who does the experiments on them and is trying to conceive a baby in space uh, yeah, Mia Goth Andre 3000 is in it as well or Andre Benjamin they give him a Sunday name as he's credited in this and it's again probably not what you expect from any of the people involved except Claire Denis it's gorgeous it's brutal it's repulsive it's uh, Cerebral is baffling. It's uh, it's great. It's really really great. So yeah, if you can seek it out, and of course, as always, cleared in the music by Stuart Staples from Tinder Sticks. So, oh yes, yeah, that's yeah, right. So also that to look forward to. But yeah, so that's I think we've now covered the entirety of the top ten for me. So <laughs> okay, took us quite hour. happy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we finish up for the year, I would like to kind of talk a little bit about a choice of one best Scottish film of the last decade, and I'll just your favourite film if that's possible of the last decade and I'm going to start best Scottish one for me I thought a little bit about Shell and Transport 2 which we talked about last time which I thought was better than it had any right to be you were never really here which we mentioned earlier on but I had to check that it was in the last decade but Under the Skin is my uh, definite uh, favourite Scottish film in the last 10 years um, Chris 
I mean, it's got to be, right? It's under yeah. the skin. I mean, I, I feel like we're going to have all three of us are going to come to a consensus on under the skin here. In a way, that's good. Yeah. What a great film it is. Yeah, I mean, I've watched it again recently for the first time in a while. Like, oh my God. There's nothing that was like it, you know? I mean, it's not even like a kind of thing where, you know, a lot of the time I feel like when we talk about good Scottish films, it's like, oh, it was good for a Scottish film, you know, kind of thing, you know? But this is just, it's a great film. It's a film that's genuinely topping, like, you know, best of lists, best of the decade lists the world over. Could easily be my best film. Exactly. Perhaps is but I'm going to choose something yeah. else. I mean again like you say other potential contenders like obviously you were never really here and Lynn Ramsey also gave yes. me to talk about Kevin this decade oh, God, um, yes. Where You're Meant to Be the Aiden Office documentary um, which I is fantastic um, even I have a lot of time for God Help the Girls Stuart Murrow's directorial mm-hmm. debut I know it wasn't everyone's <laughs> taste but I uh I have a lot of time for it. Uh, Peter Mullins' Neds was this decade. Ter- oh, wow. Terrence Davies' Sunset Song. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I really liked that at the time and I watched it again recently and it wasn't quite as good as I remembered it, but there you are. I haven't seen it since it was in cinema, so I have yeah. fond memories of it. And, um, John, I've forgotten his director, John McClane's Slow West. Oh, Slow West, yes. Yeah. Now, that was one I was considering, which was yeah. his uh, Western. Yeah. Um, really oh, understated yeah. and... Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a fantastic film. Do check that out. It's a thought, great uh, film. Former member of the Beta Band had it in them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, Under the Skin. Under, I mean, the, nothing else really compares I think, yeah. to, to Under the Skin. It's the most authentic depiction of Glasgow I've ever seen. <laughs> well, that's that as well. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, Wesley? Yeah, I mean, going to, well, firstly, looking at actually thinking of Scottish films in a decade, I was a decade out because I was like, hmm. Maybe I would think Red Road or <laughs> um, does Ratcatcher count as this decade? Nineteen ninety nine. So yeah, we, yeah. well a decade out, forgetting that this decade actually includes years such as twenty seventeen and twenty sixteen. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Under the Skin is up there. I think it didn't work for me in all places. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since the um, the first time I saw it in cinema, mm-hmm. despite having it in Blu-ray. I, w- I do want to revisit it though. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, but I mean, Should. even Mika Mika Levy's score is one of my favourite scores yes. in the past decade so it stands on that alone in some of the location shots um, and that sort of unnerving this landmark scene going towards the end of it as it closes is spectacular but I mean just looking through the other films I'd sort of noted um, Chris mentioned most of them to be honest um, obviously You Were Never Really Here stands out up there completely forgot about Slow West I think that's a mm. really really great shout um, and uh, yeah I think the Great Hip Hop Hoax, by the way, that came out in 2013. Yeah, yeah. That was a really good documentary. I really right. enjoyed that. Um, and Calibre, I think. I just wanted to shout out Calibre again because when I first saw it, I really enjoyed it. Um, but on a second viewing, it actually landed a lot more. So Cal- Calibre was that um, sort of Matt Palmer film. We both directed it um, with um, Tony Curran in it. Um, and oh, I've forgotten his name now. Can't remember. He's in Dunkirk. He's in a few other things. Um, Scottish actor, really well known. You'll recognise his face. Um, but basically, it was really sort of tense, coarse, ambiguous sort of film. That was um, that a television Netflix? Netflix yeah. Was, wasn't so it? I don't think it was made by or for Netflix. Netflix just they, picked it up. They picked it up after. I think it was after the Edinburgh Film Festival last I year. They got picked mean, up yeah. on Netflix. Uh, yeah. For distribution. It's just got this really sort of stomach-chilling setup and. It sets itself up as this really sort of standard thriller affair, but it subtly does this groundwork to lay on this really intense last half part of the film. And it's just a really good top-notch genre film, and I think I would, it sort of flew under the radar a little bit. And also remembered that um, it's not a great film, it's pretty formulaic, but charming by numbers, but I quite enjoyed it. It was The Angel Share, which came out in 2012. Ah, yeah? Yeah, um, not exactly what you'd expect from Loach. I suppose it's more akin to maybe Kez or something like that, but um, it, it just... 
completely slipped my mind until thinking of it this, yeah, yeah. this week and then realised that it actually did come out this decade. Um, it's just a nice sort of like charming Scottish film. It's very much, you know, waving whiskey and kilts in your face, but it's um, it's, 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 it's uh, nice very much meets um, Tartanry, isn't it? Yes, that it very much is. Yeah. Uh, I, I enjoyed it as well. I, I have to say, it. and I, I must go back and watch Neds again because I haven't seen that since I still not it seen it. came yeah, out. Since this was in cinemas, I remember it being half great and half not so great. But uh, quite harrowing in places yeah, as well because Mullen's been absent as a director since then I think like it's yeah. one that I would look back on more fondly now just because we haven't had a Peter yeah, Mullen film sure. for, for 10 years at this point sure. yeah, so. yeah it's not orphans which is still no, uh, still high genius. watermark I think so definitely yeah. so let's uh, round off this um, podcast by talking just I think very briefly what's your favourite film in the last decade I mean right I thought long and hard about this because yeah, obviously like you kind of want there to be an element of recommendation here and I don't think I need to direct many more people to go see like any of Scorsese's last three films or Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master or Terence Malick's Tree of Life I think anybody who has like a cursory interest in film will have already seen like the big hitters from the day so what I'm going to say here I don't know it's the long film. dark world yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah uh, Ragnarok actually. no uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, the, so the one that I think I would give as a recommendation because I feel like it will be the one that a few people listening will probably have seen because it never actually got proper distribution over here uh-huh. um, is Don Hertzfeld's It's Such a Beautiful Day which is a kind of almost a kind of companion film of three a trilogy of animated films he was, he's an animator and he animates every frame of his own films by hand he's based in Austin Texas and he kind of got a start uh, people probably have seen some of his short films without realising that they made the rounds in a lot of like early kind of you know internet video compilations and stuff but he won an Oscar for one of his early shorts or was, was he nominated he was at least Oscar nominated for an early short um, and made this which is today still his masterpiece so it's, uh, it centres on uh, basically a stick figure called Bill who is diagnosed with a mysterious neural illness and uh, it basically in the space of an hour unpacks his family history like and sends him kind of careening into this kind of like transcendent Terence Malachy kind of future um, to the end of human civilization pretty much uh, it follows him through this kind of cosmos uh, it's, it's hilarious it's heartbreaking it's dark it's harrowing um, it's beautiful to look at um, and as I say never got proper distribution over here I saw it at the Glasgow Film Festival and then you have to actually buy the DVD directly from Don Harrisfeld himself <laughs> online which I can recommend <laughs> I doing because it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely incredible he followed it up with another couple of widely acclaimed shorts uh, World of Tomorrow and his sequel um, which I think was just World Tomorrow Chapter 2 uh, which again you can have you can I think you can get them on Vimeo you know you can yes. stream them that kind of thing you won't get them on Netflix or Amazon I don't think but you can definitely go on you know and, and rent them mm-hmm. or, or buy them outright but uh, they are the most like profound incredible like compact concise films I've seen this decade it's just up there with anything else uh, that I mentioned in the, in the run up to that so yeah that's that's my recommendation to seek out Don Harrisfeld it's such a beautiful day good man and Leslie yes yeah, so I also like this thought long and hard about it however I did not think of actually recommending something people might not see <laughs> um, yeah and I mean, he's like and, and you know what although I might probably will throw out a bit of a curveball because maybe it's not one you would expect me to say but I mean of course Phantom Thread The Florida Project Moonlight are all ones that are really up there for me um, Carol as well, Roma, Brooklyn, those ones that we've discussed over the past few years that have really stuck with me, I think, are spectacular. But do you know what? I think my best film in a de- decade has to be Paddington 2. Absolute film. Honestly, what a brilliant, brilliant film. Up there with The Godfather Part 2 in terms of sequels. Um, it is, um, but in all seriousness, it's 
such a really, really, really beautiful film. I mean, it screams a Wes Anderson throughout it as well, which yeah. is really bizarre, um, whether you think that's a good thing or not. Um, and I think it's really easy to dismiss it as sort of feel-good fluff, but um, pun intended, but it's um, so, so much more than that in every single level. I think it's got this amazing message of sort of tolerance and acceptance, understanding and compassion throughout it, um, really celebrates diversity without sort of shoving it down your throat at a time where people really need that sort of message because um, it doesn't feel forced at any point yeah. um, and it's got a spectacular supporting cast not least Brendan Gleeson who's brilliant in it um, and I mean at its heart it's essentially a story of a refugee mm-hmm. like it really is um, and it's got a career best performance from Hugh Grant in it so I mean what more can you ask from a film it really film? is it, it really is really really is a brilliant film um, that's a great choice I have to say <laughs> I, I am going to go a bit route one I would say um, it's actually a Scottish film but you talk about films that you can't people maybe couldn't see at the cinema and very hard to get were May Miles Thomas's Voyageuse, which we talked about last year and we did a podcast with her, is exactly that. You can go online, Vimeo, purchase it, have a look at it. It's fantastic. And it's about um, uncovering this secret history of a family um, by going through someone's things after they've passed away. Beautiful film and really worth um, watching. But Route 1, mine is Phantom Thread. Because I was thinking over the last 10 years, there's no other film I think where it's just knocked me sideways in terms of everything about it you know um, John Greenwood's soundtrack um, Daniel Day-Lewis's apparently last performance and, and uh, the way it looked and it was all about good clothes as well I mean of course <laughs> I'm going to go for that but I just absolutely adore Paul well, Thomas Anderson's in her one like Scorsese where I feel like you could have picked any film he made this decade yeah. Yeah, you know, to be, it would be I mean because it's the master inherent vice in Phantom Thread like that's uh, that's an all time run I, I yes but I do th- for me Phantom yeah. Thread is, is the one out of the, even out of those yeah. uh, three um, well thanks very much that was fantastic yeah, so that you. was not just your best films of 2019 but also of the past decade um, and we'll be back soon with another best of 2019 we'll see you then cheers mm-hmm.